Welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, welcome to those of you watching online at cato.org slash live. Uh, I'm Walter Olson. I'm senior fellow at the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute. Uh, you can also join the conversation on Twitter and social media uh, by using the hashtag, hashtag CatoAdoption. Uh, I'd like to start by thanking first the Cato events staff, uh, which has done a terrific job of making things go smoothly. Uh, and I'd like to thank in particular Professor Robin Fretwell Wilson of the uh, University of Illinois School of Law, part of our first panel, uh, whose help has been absolutely instrumental uh, and without which we would not be here today. Uh, briefly, our schedule today, um, the panel that you are about to hear will end at 3.50, PM. Uh, there will then be a 10-minute break. That's long enough for you to uh, go out and stretch a bit if you like. Um, we will reconvene promptly for our keynote address, uh, which will go on until 4.40. Then there will be only a five-minute break. And I recommend that you stay here unless you've got a really good reason not to stay here so that we can uh, assemble our second panel promptly and continue through 6 o'clock. Uh, after 6 o'clock, there will be a reception out in what Cato calls the Winter Garden, which is uh, where you come in, uh, the, the atrium area. Um, so <clears throat> thank you again for coming. I'd like to introduce the moderator of our first panel, uh, Rabbi David Saperstein of the um, it is Union of Reform Hebrew Con Congregations, uh, where he's his best-known association and uh, certainly one of the best-known men in American religious life, uh, Rabbi Saperstein. Welcome. I'm truly delighted to be here with such a distinguished panel and want to express, I think, the appreciation of everyone here, Wally, for Cato's hosting of uh, this important subject. Um, you are always willing to tackle uh, the tough issues. I'm glad you have a really easy one to deal with uh, today um, at this gathering. Um, this is a, an issue that obviously uh, tears at the heartstrings of so many people because of the equities that are involved, um, the rights of social service providers who do extraordinary work um, to some of the most vulnerable in our society, the rights of children, um, the rights of families, uh, all intermesh with each other and occasionally in tension um, with each other. And the competing interests of religious providers in terms of the religious freedom rights that they uh, uh, enjoy and the civil rights protections that are built into non-discrimination law that often attends with government funds. Um, all of these raise issues that we seek ways to resolve at a time that this country is in a divisive mood, um, uh, is, has growing gaps in the way we perceive fundamental issues of, uh, of core values of America. 
Um, we see that in a range of legislation, which you'll hear about from our speakers in very different in different states, and even within some states, tensions within those states, and at the federal level, some of the contradictory aspects of legislation and regulation that pertains to, um, uh, to this area. Um, it's not surprising as a result of that, we have seen a number of lawsuits over these issues just in its last year. Um, the Michigan ACLU uh, uh, suit against the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services on behalf of a lesbian married, uh, two married couples who sought to adopt from uh, Catholic charities and were turned away. Um, they claim that the refusal is Michigan's uh, act, the state of Michigan's act, which, which licenses and supports um, the uh, child services and denies them their rights under federal rights. Um, violating uh, 1983, Section 1983. In Texas, a lesbian couple filed suit against an agency that would not consider them as foster parents for refugee children in need of temporary homes because they, quote, did not mirror the holy family, unquote. Um, these are issues of fundamental core values. Religious providers who do not want to be compelled by the government to engage in activities that violate their core religious beliefs, the needs of children to be placed at a time there aren't enough places to place them, the rights of the families, um, not just the LG in the LGBTQ community, um, but the rights of a number of minorities, including religious minorities and others who may be subject um, to discrimination under some of the formulations um, uh, that we see here, um, uh, to have the right to create a family and to adopt a child, um, to participate in the foster care system. Um, we could not have a better cast of uh, speakers, of experts on this area than those we gathered here for this panel. Let me just introduce them uh, in the beginning uh, here. Um, I know that on behalf of the 440,000 um, children who are a part of the foster care uh, system. All of them want to find ways to be of uh, help to them have thought through um, these issues uh, deeply here. Um, first, we'll hear from Professor Stephanie Barkley. After a stint at Covington and Burling, uh, she went uh, to, the, um, uh, to the Beckett Fund, which is a leading uh, proponent of the legal rights of uh, religious uh, entities in America, religious individuals in America, played a key role in much of the litigation um, uh, that went on there, both at the litigation, the appellate level, up to the uh, Supreme Court, now serves as an associate professor of law um, at uh, BYU's uh, uh, Reuben Clark uh, Law School, and uh, is a real expert in the question of <clears throat> how democratic institutions um, help protect minority rights, particularly where free speech and free exercise come together. Um, Sarah Warbolo, um, uh, on my immediate right here, um, is uh, also an expert in a range of civil rights laws, um, but most importantly for this conversation has served um, uh, it's in, in the last 10 years as a key lawyer at the Human Rights Campaign um, and held, now leads their team of lawyers and fellows focused on federal and state and municipal uh, policy and coordinates their amicus work, um, uh, which has given us an opportunity to um, work together over the years and is deeply immersed in uh, litigation and uh, uh, of, in, in legislation dealing with these issues. 
Um, uh, Walter Olson, Wally is uh, a, a key figure here, a senior fellow at Cato. Um, his expertise in the legal and talking and writing about the legal profession, his uh, moderating of overlawyer.com, one of the preeminent uh, online um, web blog sites for, um, uh, for lawyers, uh, his work in governance and government regulation and tort reform, um, his book, The Litigation Explosion, caught the attention of so many many of us uh, were delighted to have his expertise here. Um, and you've already heard a reference to uh, Professor Robin uh, Wilson, uh, who uh, serves as a law professor at the University of Illinois College of Law, directing their uh, the family law and policy program, their health law and policy program on health care law, on family law, on children's rights law, and religious freedom. She has been uh, a leading expert that uh, many of us look to for insight. Um, she's written widely on this, um, scores of articles, um, but a number of books, uh, nearly a dozen books on the subject. I had the pleasure of working with her. Not only is she a great writer, but a superb editor as well. And um, with Bill Eskridge has uh, edited a book on religious freedom, LGBT rights, and the prospects for common ground that should be coming out in a, uh, in a few months. We really could not have a better team of people uh, to help guide us in this conversation. And Stephanie, it's my pleasure now to turn it over to, uh, uh, to you. Thank you for that kind introduction. And thank you to Cato for having us and to Robin for organizing this event. It's a pleasure to be here with this all-star lineup. I actually tweeted in advance about this event and mentioned that I was excited to join a conversation with these folks. And then I turned off my phone to have dinner with my family. And I turned back on my phone later to learn that I had tagged not Robin, the scholar, but Robin, the famous porn star. <laughs> and <laughs> you can imagine the X-rated photos that my friends and colleagues were unexpectedly pulling up. Uh, so notwithstanding that snafu, I'm so grateful they were willing to keep me and have me anyway. And it's a pleasure to be here with you today. I want to start with some first principles, some areas of agreement that I imagine many uh, on this panel and in the room can agree with. And that is number one, gay couples can be fantastic parents and should not be banned from adopting or fostering children. Number two, there's a shortage of foster homes and adoptive homes for foster children. And number three, our policy decisions should be ultimately aimed at what is going to be best for these foster children and to, to protect these children who have suffered so much. And as was mentioned, I'm a professor at BYU Law School, but also within the last year, I've spent much of my time involved in some litigation regarding these cases. And so I just want to share with you some of the practical things that I have learned as part of that process. Um, and to understand what conflict is at stake? I think it's helpful to understand some of uh, the background of, of what's going on. Number one, in the foster care context nationally, there are 400,000 children right now in foster care. And of those, 100,000 are just waiting to be adopted. Every year, about 20,000 foster children age out, which means that they leave foster care not having been able to find a permanent family, not having connections necessary to make it on their own. And studies show that many of those children who are predominantly minority children are more likely to end up not getting an education, to potentially end up in poverty and back on the streets. So this is a serious problem fueled in part by the opioid epidemic. I also just want to clarify the difference between public adoption and private adoption and the way that that works. With uh, private adoption, that's where 
the paradigmatic example is a teen mother is giving up her child voluntarily because she doesn't think she can care for the child and wants to give the child a different life. That's very different than what we're going to spend most of our time talking about, and that is public adoption, where these children have been removed from their homes because they have suffered abuse and neglect sometimes of unspeakable levels that none of us can even imagine. And so by definition, these are some of the most vulnerable children in our society. And those children, those foster children who need to be adopted or, or placed temporarily in foster homes as wards of the state, agencies cannot help those children unless agencies have a partnership, a contract with the government to do so. If they don't have that partnership, they are prohibited from providing those services. Now, in the context of how it, it works with foster care, what happens is a prospective foster family might approach a government agency or they might approach private agencies. And, and the government relies on private agencies because they, they can't find enough homes on their own. They need all hands on deck to try and find more homes and more families for these kids. If a family uh, contacts a private agency, there might be a number of reasons why that private agency refers them elsewhere. There are foster agencies that focus exclusively on doing placements for Native American children with Native American families. There are foster agencies that uh, have an expertise and a mission in language for certain populations, so agencies that advertise their ability to serve the Latino community. There are agencies that have a mission of servicing exclusively LGBTQ populations and trying to find homes for LGBTQ children. There are agencies that focus on finding homes for black children. There are agencies that focus on particular medical issues or behavioral health issues. And so for if, if, for example, a couple approached an agency that specializes in placing Native American children with a Native American family, and that, that family didn't have Native American children, or Native American heritage, excuse me, that agency would say, we're happy to refer you elsewhere. That's not our mission. Here's contact information of other agencies who can help you. <clears throat> if the family proceeds with that agency, generally it varies somewhat state by state, but generally the way the process works is that the agency will perform a home study, which involves an in-depth evaluation of that family, of any relationships of adults in that family who are going to be caring for the foster child, and ultimately what is a certification or an endorsement of not just that family but those relationships. And that's where the conflict arises for some faith-based agencies in this context, is they're saying, we're not trying to stop anyone from fostering or adopting. We'll refer you elsewhere if you would be a better fit, but we cannot provide a written endorsement of a relationship that contradicts our religious beliefs. That includes for uh, the agencies in Michigan and Philly, for example, uh, they couldn't do a written certification of an unmarried couple nor that can they provide a written certification for a same-sex couple. But the Michigan agency, for example, says same-sex couples could still adopt children in our care if they receive that written endorsement through another agency. And in fact, that has happened multiple times in the past. They are just saying, we cannot provide that written document contradicting our religious beliefs. Uh, I think one of the things that the developments in Philadelphia is helpful to try and weigh harm on both sides of the ledger and what some of the real world human impacts of these cases can have. Philadelphia in March of this year announced that they had an urgent need for 300 additional foster families. They also said that they have 250 children 
in group homes, these are institutionalized settings right now, who really need to be in a foster um, home. Despite that, Philadelphia cut off ties with one of the top rated agencies in that city, uh, Catholic Social Services, because of the hypothetical situation that might arise if Catholic Social Services was asked to provide a certification for same-sex couples, even though that situation has never arisen for that agency before. And as a result, one of the things that happened in that case is there was a young special needs child who needed a placement. There was an emergency that arose. The three options on the table for the city were send young autistic child to a shelter, let young autistic child spend the night in our office, or send young autistic child to a former foster mother who wants to care for the child and is available and ready and who works with Catholic social services. And the city said, we're, we've cut off ties with Catholic Social Services. We're not working with families who work with Catholic Social Services. We're not sending that child to that former foster mother, despite the fact that she was ready and willing and desperately wanted to care for this child. And it took an emergency motion to the court and multiple weeks of this child languishing in a temporary home and not getting treatment and therapy for his special needs before that uh, placement was made that should have happened instantaneously. So in closing, I, I just want to point out that there, I don't think that there needs to be a conflict in this area. There's lots of agencies that specialize in certain areas that would refer families elsewhere for multiple reasons. Faith-based agencies are one of those, but we are richer as a country when we have a plurality of voices, when we have faith-based and secular agencies that are serving a range of populations, and when they're all working together to bring in as many homes and as many families as possible for these children who so desperately need it. Thank you. I noticed as the podium blocks uh, the view of some of the people and on the far ends for the two of us. As I step over my bag, excuse me on that one. <laughs> so um, thank you all for joining us today. I want to talk about the same issues from a slightly different perspective. I think we can all agree that what's the number one priority is having policies that are in the best interest of the child. The best interest of the child must be at the forefront of whatever policies we adopt, be they at the municipal level, the state level, or the federal level. But that's not what's happening right now. In states across this country, there are efforts afoot to allow certain adoption and foster care agencies to be able to place their own personal views over the best interest of the child. There's been a lot of attention on this issue as an LGBTQ issue. And certainly same-sex headed families are being excluded from the population um, that is eligible for adoption by these agencies, despite the fact that they are well qualified and willing to take children in. But these are not the only families that are being excluded. Families that make up minority religions in South Carolina a very experienced foster family who happened to be Jewish had fostered children for decades in North Carolina. They moved to South Carolina and a uh, Christian adoption agency refused to place children in their care because they were Jewish. We are talking about an emergency in this country where there are not enough families for the children in need. It's outrageous that we would allow agencies 
to turn away qualified families because they don't fit a narrow model of what that ideal family should look like for that particular agency. We also know that children are not being placed with single parents, despite the fact that single women are more willing to take in hard to place children, children with disabilities, children who are older. And these are the children who are most vulnerable and most need our care. We are not talking about a situation in which the bulk of children um, who are eligible for adoption are infants under the age of one. We are talking about children for whom too few Americans are willing to adopt. When it comes to LGBTQ people, there are over 200 million LGBTQ people I'm sorry, there's over 2 million uh, LGBTQ people um, who are interested in adopting and being foster parents. These are individuals who are willing to take in hard-to-place children. We should not be placing barriers in the way to care. I want to stress again that we are talking about qualified families. We are not talking about couples or individuals who are not able to meet or raise children. We're talking about qualified individuals. Now, much of this got kicked off because the state of Virginia was contemplating um, adopting a regulation that prohibited foster uh, agencies from discriminating against prospective families, including on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, the knee-jerk reaction of the legislature was to adopt a law that allowed these agencies to continue to accept taxpayer funding, including funding from people that they would not serve, in order to refuse to place children in loving families who are willing to accept them into their arms. That is a very serious problem. Some of the proposals on the table would also allow child welfare agencies to refuse to place children with their biological families because that agency has deemed the person ineligible solely based on their sexual orientation or gender identity. Think about that. If you have a child in foster care, you have an agency that says, we would rather place a child in congregate care or with a stranger than place that child with a qualified aunt who happens to be lesbian and married to another woman. That's outrageous that we would separate children from their families based purely on a dislike for a particular group of people. But that's what's happening today. Some of these policies also permit discrimination against LGBTQ youth themselves. About 25% of youth in the foster care system are LGBTQ themselves. LGBTQ youth are at high risk for rejection from their families, make up up to 40% of runaway and homeless youth. It is these children who are part of the population that need to have access to loving families. But some of the proposals and some of the laws that have passed, including in Texas, would allow agencies to discriminate against the youth in their care, right? to place children with families who will subject them to conversion therapy, to refuse to recognize that a transgender child is transgender, to torture that child, 
by refusing to recognize the child's name, pronouns, and identity, to place those children into homes that are hostile to them. And that is the type of problem that we're talking about. At the federal level, you may have heard of the proposed Adderholt Amendment that was uh, introduced in the House or added to um, the HHS funding bill in the House. This bill would allow for all of those dangers, every single one of them. In addition, one of the secrets of that bill that people aren't talking about is that the um, proposed amendment removed language that could allow for discrimination on the basis of race that you could turn away otherwise qualified individuals because they're Latino, because they're black, and they simply don't meet an agency's mold. Now you think, may think that that seems a little far-fetched, and yet interracial couples are frequently deemed to be ineligible by particular religious groups. There is still an underlying history of racism in this country um, that is at issue. We need to make sure that all children have every opportunity to be adopted. So one of the things I also want to address is this myth that somehow we have a dearth of agencies, that there are not enough people who are able to work with children. That simply isn't true. When we look at states like Massachusetts and Illinois, in which religiously affiliated adoption and foster care agencies decided that they no longer wanted to continue to operate and abide by state non-discrimination laws, there has been no change in the placement levels for youth and care. If you look at the three years preceding um, that change in policy by the state, and if you look at the three years post that change in policy by the state, there is no difference in the rates of placement of youth into permanent uh, homes and permanent care in those years, none. In addition, we know that oftentimes it is not the social workers and the counselors who are experts in the best interests of the children who want to carry out these policies of the agency. It is a top-down mandate um, based on uh, a religious uh, organization. So what happens is that in many of these states, when uh, a religious provider decides that they will no longer provide services because uh, of their unwillingness to abide by non-discrimination laws, it is the staff of these agencies that reform new agencies because the staff themselves who are experts in providing care to youth are more than willing to ensure that every adoptive family, prospective adoptive family, is given an equal opportunity to provide for the best interest of that child. Thank you. Seven years ago, I think, was when I first wrote about this problem, and I cited a cautionary example, uh, the well-known uh, litigation in uh, Wilder versus Bernstein. That was against New York City, which 
had inherited a foster care system uh, run largely by institutions uh, from major religious groups. And uh, the groups tended to provide foster placements for their kids. The Catholic agencies would make arrangements for Catholic kids. Well, along came public interest lawyers. Uh, so many of my paragraphs start with those words. <laughs> along came public interest lawyers arguing that this was unconstitutional, this was religious discrimination. It perpetuated religious discrimination, and in particular, it perpetuated inequalities because some of the religious agencies were really good. The Catholic agencies, the Jewish agencies, were known for uh, doing an exceptionally good job. This was not true for uh, the Protestant agencies, which tended to serve a, a largely black population, um, even if their own background were, were white. And this inequality was uh, unacceptable in the view of the litigators. So this, the city settled. It probably agreed with some of the fairness arguments, agreed to scrap the system, and in particular, uh, cut back drastically on religious matching. Uh, the agencies would have to adopt something closer to a first-come, first-served uh, method of assignment. Uh, they were more like interchangeable outposts in a single uh, foster care system. So problem solved, right? Foster care in New York is great. No. Uh, outcomes were already pretty darn bad, and they went uh, to even worse as the high-performing religious agencies um, lost their oomph, volunteers scattered um, uh, once they no longer had as much of a mission to pursue, and the other agencies did no better. Uh, the city's foster care system lurched from crisis to crisis through 26 years of litigation. Think of it, 26 years of legal uncertainty. And this reminded me at the time of an old line also from the heyday of the public interest law movement in the 70s. Um, and with many applications, whether it be to mental health cases or prison cases, the, the slogan is, they died with their rights on. And I, I hoped then, seven years ago, that we would not repeat some of the same mistakes with adoption. Um, the, I fear that we may be doing that. And this was psychologically all the more um, needless, I think, because when I myself had my um, exposure both uh, intellectually in reading about it and uh, personally with the adoption world, um, you don't spend very long in the adoption world without noticing that two groups are really, really overrepresented in it, at least not 15 years ago. Uh, one group is those of intense religious faith, those who uh, have a mission uh, to, to help the orphan, uh, to, to help the, the needy children. They are tremendously overrepresented in those who will spend long hours, make great sacrifices. And the second group, of course, was the gay people. Uh, they had reasons why they could not uh, often be parents directly, and they were out there too. And I'm not just talking, of course, about the easy cases, about the teenage expectant mother who has 25 people, all of whom would love to uh, adopt her baby. I'm talking about the hardest to place cases, the medically fragile cases, the older sibling groups, uh, the countries that are so far away that you can't even find them on a map, uh, the, the, the behaviorally challenged kids. Who is there for them? Well, so often it was either the highly devout people or the gay people who would step in for those placements that no one else would make. So I think a lot of those interactions, those cultural collisions, as it were, um, were surprising and, and beneficial on both sides because both sides had some suspicion to get over about whether the other group, quote unquote, uh, would, were really there for the right reasons, whether they actually would make good parents. But you saw it in action. You saw how much they cared. Um, people overcame their suspicion as they realized, wait a minute, they're here for the same reasons I'm here. 
uh, because they don't want to let these children wait any longer. So, so it was so hard to treat them as an enemy, not after you got to know them, not after you saw what they were doing. And then came the beginning of what may be 26 years of litigation against each other. And I've been writing about litigation for more or less my whole adult life. It's what I made my name in. And there is a lot that I still don't know about litigation, but I know that if you want to go on liking and respecting people, that you have found reasons to like and respect, you probably shouldn't be in litigation with them because it leads to, it leads to the opposite sorts of outcomes. Um, it sours things that should have gone uh, sweet. It, um, uh, and in particular, it turns people to other motives. It, it makes them defensive. Uh, there's another line from the 70s that comes back to me, which is Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan's line, uh, organizations that fight each other uh, eventually come to resemble each other. And I fear that in some ways, uh, <clears throat> the organized groups on both sides uh, if we let the litigation go on for too long, we'll come to resemble each other even more than they do now. Now, I have already been critical uh, of some of the same things that uh, Stephanie was critical of. Uh, the idea that by taking $1 of public money uh, that you are uh, caught, you can't even keep home studies to yourself, um, uh, you must uh, convert, as I believe is the argument of some of the lawyers in Michigan, uh, to complete non-discrimination across your entire range of activities, even if as an agency you stood ready to deal with uh, parents who were brought in by other agencies that were of uh, di different religious uh, views. And I agree that when you do that, when you press the logic that far, uh, some waiting children will probably wait longer. We should not accept that. Um, unfortunately, as Sarah uh, very rightly said, a lot of the remedies that we are now hearing, uh, and I looked at the Adderholt Amendment, uh, I looked at uh, what Kansas recently uh, was uh, trying to enact, and I find that by adopting some of the same uh, absolutist insistence on no discrimination against us, uh, you know, that this is um, a matter of human rights and there is to be no compromise, well, <clears throat> those bills often provide a sweeping and absolute right of religious agencies not to be discriminated against over any of their uh, decisions, um, uh, not just defunding, but also adverse action. And I try to apply this to a situation like that in the state of Kansas. Now, the state of Kansas has two, exactly two, uh, agencies that the state contracts out with uh, to run its foster care system. And one of them, I believe, is considered likely to want one of these religious exemptions. I couldn't tell whether the other one also did. But I realized that if these laws um, become final, Adderholt and, and, and the Kansas one, um, and that second agency uh, pipes up with its own religious objections and says, uh, like St. Francis, we, we want to opt out of this, what is the state of Kansas to do? Well, uh, can it say um, we'd like at least one agency that we deal with uh, to be open to everyone? Well, that would be adverse action, wouldn't it? That would be discrimination. That would take away some business from one of the two agencies. Can the state introduce a third agency? Well, that looks like adverse action to me, too. So uh, I worry that with some intentions that I share, the states and, uh, and the members of Congress who are pursuing this path are indeed opening us up to some of the same things that, that Sarah has warned about. So <clears throat> we, we will talk afterward about possible 
uh, ways out of this mess. And I'm looking forward to hearing what uh, Professor Wilson has to say, as well as some of our panelists later on in the day. Um, you know, we live with things like the GI Bill for education in which you can take your GI voucher and you can go out and go to seminary if you want. You know, you can give, go to an explicitly religious, explicitly um, uh, religious doctrine-driven institution, and that's okay under uh, separation doctrine uh, because it's your college money to take where you want. Is there some way of voucherizing child services so that whoever makes the placement can get the subsidy, um, whether it is a secular or a religious group? Uh, I don't know. I'd love to hear about this, but I'll just close with one thought, which is when I began reading about the policy background of adoption, uh, I realized for about the umpteenth time how glad I was to live in America. This is a realization that comes to you an awful lot in the adoption uh, topic, which is that we in America are lucky, and in particular, we in America do not have a single government agency that coordinates all adoption. Many European countries do, and they wind up uh, with whichever is the culturally dominant side having its way. You can't get outside the agency in many European countries to adopt your own way. In America, we had incredible pluralism. You had decision makers, including states. You had cities that were doing the opposite of what their states thought the policy was. You had uh, bureaus within cities that were doing the opposite of what they thought the uh, city hall was asking them to do. You had tons of private agencies. You had tons of lawyers. You had tons of birth mothers making their own decisions. And through all of this, we got some of the highest and most successful adoption results in the world because just like they used to say about the internet, if you're blocked in one direction, you route around it. And this is how so many gay people became parents. They routed around the obstacles in the system. Uh, it is how so many other successes were made. Please don't spoil the, the pluralism. Please work with it. Thanks. So I want to first thank Wally for having us, and especially for having um, so many smart people in the same place. Um, so can you hear me at the back? Is that good? OK. And then I wanted to thank Sarah and Stephanie both for really sort of directing our attention to what's at stake, not only for couples, but for the agencies themselves. And like Sarah, I think everybody here shares the commitment that whatever we do needs to be guided by what's best for these children. And then somehow, we have managed to mire children in the culture war. In 20 states, almost half of America, we now have laws where one side is winning and the other side is losing all the time. 13 states say that keeping religious agencies open matters the most so that the state can't discriminate against those agencies. And they don't give a tremendous amount of thought, as Wally said, to what that means for the couples who want to adopt. Nine states say that placements should be made without respect to LGBT status, and that agencies can't discriminate against couples without much thought for what that means for the religious agencies who are doing so much of this important work. And then some states perplexingly do both, including Rhode Island and Maryland. And nationally, we have conflicting directives at the federal government and from the federal government. So a little known 2016 regulation from the Obama administration announced a broad administrative policy that sexual orientation and gender identity, SOGI, should not be grounds for exclusion from benefits supported by HHS dollars. 
Now, that regulation did not interpret a specific statute. It's naked policy. But states have now pushed this policy into their own laws and regulations. On the other side, as Stephanie mentioned, well, maybe you didn't. I thought she would. Our federal foster care dollars, our Title IV-E dollars, have long contained a non-discrimination principle saying that the federal government and states cannot discriminate against an organization because of its, quote, religious character. So little wonder that this bubbling controversy erupted this week. President Governor Wolf, uh, Pennsylvania Governor Wolf announced that Pennsylvania's SWAN, or statewide adoption net network, starting in August, will contract only with agencies that agree to SOGI, or LGBT non-discrimination provisions. You're going to see litigation. It's probably already in the works. And more importantly, I think, it may lead to the closure of Catholic charities in the eight dioceses across Pennsylvania. We have not seen any closure on that scale in America. Now, without resolving these federal directives, the Adderholt Amendment would attach an appropriations rider allowing adoption agencies to follow their moral or religious beliefs and strip states like Pennsylvania of 15% of their very precious Title IV-E dollars if they don't allow that. In other words, they would punish the state for following federal law. Now, respect for federalism suggests that the federal government should not give states legal mandates and then strip them of money when they follow them. The Adderholt Amendment does nothing to resolve the, re the conflicting federal directives. And it's such a tangled weed, it's a hot mess, that I actually think we need hearings before we did something that that, that, that profound. Now, for me, this is tragic. I'm an adopted child myself. My mom and dad literally changed the entire arc of my life. And I think for children like me, we need to go back and ask, what were the basic goods that this entire system was set up to solve and to, to serve? And to use a phrase from Stephanie, I think that means we need all hands on deck. And that means that every loving couple that can care for children, unmarried women who can care for children, anybody who can give them a good family and is able to do so should be able to do so without being humiliated or turned away or told that they're somehow less than. I think it also means that we have to keep every one of these agencies who are doing this amazing work including the religious agencies, in the marketplace doing that important work for children. So I think one thing that's important that I hope comes out of today is that both of the outcomes that we've been describing across the country, agencies lose or couples lose, that both of those hurt children. Now, gay couples have been disproportionately stepping up to the plate to adopt and foster. And just to use one statistic I don't think you had, in Oklahoma, which just passed a standalone religious adoption agency protection, 24% of gay couples were raising adopted kids, compared to 4% of heterosexual couples. These are the hands on deck. They need to stay in. Now, if my mom and dad had gone to an agency, and my dad had been told that he and my mother were not the perfect family, they would have left. And my father would have told my mother, we are not going back. So my family would never have adopted if that type of thing had happened. 
And who loses? It's kids like me. Now, we need these agencies to do the important work they're doing notwithstanding. Turns out they're amazing, they're doing an amazing tax, a task of prospecting families, finding families, they vet them, they counsel them, they do the home studies, they serve them. And these agencies work in niche markets, in communities full of people like themselves, where they actually draw those families forward. And they're successful because the people that they're drawing forward share their very values. And we should not be glib about that. Now, the statistics here are hard to find, but in Georgia, for example, religious adoption agencies that felt that they could not make placements with same-sex couples were eight of 98, or basically one in 10 agencies. In Michigan, the religious agencies accounted for 25 to 30% of placements. Many, as all of these folks have said, are really good at placing especially hard-to-place children. So we need agencies in every niche market, whether they're faith communities or Spanish-speaking communities, as you said, African-American communities, LGBT communities. And these agencies need to speak the community's language. And if they don't, the people who are going to lose are kids. Now, the non-discrimination battles have proceeded like this high-stakes game of chicken. The government says comply or lose. Um, and, you know, in, and actually in Massachusetts, my statistics are showing that the number of children in placement after the closure of Catholic Charities of Boston, after 103 years of serving children, that population actually went down. So I'll be happy to show you that graph. Boom, boom, boom. But we also saw this in the Archdiocese of Washington. We saw it in, in Illinois with the marriage equality laws. And then this year in Philadelphia, this is the first time we've seen a reversal to my knowledge. And Bethany first said, no, I can't make placements, and now has said yes. Oh, my God. At any rate, gambling on whether we are going to lose loving families or lose expert agencies strikes me as just completely nuts. Now, there's a second point, though that you've hammered, which is these are tax-funded agencies that are turning folks away. Now, some, some states actually limit the effect to public money. We've seen this both in states that say there can be no LGBT discrimination, Maryland to California, and we've seen it in states that say religious agencies can follow their faith tenets. Alabama said public money, public rules, for example. But that only carries us so far. In Maryland, Catholic Charities received 70% of its funding from federal, state, and local dollars, meaning that a public money rule would cause them to downsize 70% or possibly close. So this brings me to the deep structural problem here. Today, the state is picking winners and losers, the agencies that it allows to do this important work of certifying families and then placing children and monitoring their success. But these agencies do not get paid until the very first child is placed. The dollars flow behind the child. So that means that the agencies bear huge upfront costs to develop families simply so they can take children to foster or to adopt. So we have, in fact, put these agencies in the position of being plaintiff's lawyers, where they carry all the risk for a successful litigation. Now, that back-ended payment structure favors and rewards large agencies over small ones. And because we're at Cato, that yields a natural monopoly. With nobody, that shouldn't be really shocking to anybody. But there's a second choke point here that is defeating us and is harming children, and that is that gay couples can't adopt or foster without certification. 
Now, Stephanie said, and I think you, or Walter also said, many religious agencies, their only concern is that they not be asked to pass judgment or give blessing to certify a family. But they can monitor the placement. They can do all the rest of that work. And when we have scarcity, we often fight over the control of that scarce resource. What's needed today is a fairer funding mechanism that pieces off the front end costs and pays them directly. That's gonna draw more agencies to the certification work and it's gonna reduce the scarcity that leads to clashes. And then I'll wrap up here. Instead of putting the direct support for that certification cost though in the hands of state-picked agencies, we should put it directly in the hands of the families that are making these commitments to children. In other words, we should empower the family to hire the agency that best meets their needs to do that important certifying work for them to get them ready to take kids. And we have a model for this already. We do this with early childhood development for poorer families where we give families a certificate and let them choose where to spend it with grandma, with their cousin, with the Montessori, with the Lutheran day school. And that structure has assured us a diversity of providers and given families choice. It's worked across five presidential administrations from Bush one to Obama to now Trump. And notice what happens here. Suddenly, we don't have tax-funded agencies deciding to assist or not assist a family with public money. We have families deciding where to spend those dollars, families who know best how, who's gonna make them feel comfortable through this process and make them more successful in adopting children. I'll say this uh, here, common sense and experience show that we in fact can take children out of the culture war where they do not belong. And if we've learned anything else this week, it's that we need to do this now. Thank you. Wow. Uh, every one of these presentations was so rich in terms of the discussion we're having. I thank you all uh, very much. We're going to open it up to uh, questions in a moment here. Um, the, uh, uh, I'd ask you to raise your hand there. It will be two people with roving uh, microphones and wait for that microphone uh, before you begin to speak so that everyone in the room and on the online viewing audience can hear what you are saying. And please give us your name and affiliation. Let me just uh, flag three issues for various people having uh, heard this that at some point, if you have a chance to answer, I would. Um, first, Sarah. Um, insofar as it is accurate that the withdrawal of certain uh, religious groups who have withdrawn has had comparatively little or no effect um, on this, how does that argue for a RIFRA exemption from state RIFRAs or federal RIFRA in terms of the argument that would mean that the least restrictive means would not, would should incorporate an exemption since it would have very little impact on the compelling interests of the government um, to see that the kids are being provided for. Um, Stephanie, the response that Wally put out, in states where there are very few um, entities, uh, even uh, uh, using the, the approach you have, would there be a different standard in terms of ensuring kids are being taken care of and that segments of the community who otherwise might be subject to discrimination who really don't have options um, are taken care of? Would you hold a different standard um, in that kind of case? And to both of you, dealing with the voucher, uh, things Zellman said there has to be real choice. 
Um, it can't be a theoretical uh, choice. It has to be real choice. What happens in the very case you talked about where, uh, uh, where there's not real choice? So, uh, you know, I would ask uh, if at some point appropriate in the discussion to ask that. Um, let's open it up to, um, uh, to folks here. Uh, who's going to be brave enough to start us off? After the first question, they usually flow. So who wants to start us off? This gentleman over here, the microphone will come to you. And your name and affiliation. Tim Schultz from the First Amendment Partnership. I have a question for Sarah. Uh, I promised her outside that I would throw her a softball question. So here, here's it, here it is. Uh, you said something, um, Sarah, during your, um, your comments about uh, LGBT youth being overrepresented uh, in the foster system. And it made me wonder kind of what, where your logical train was leading. And I do not want to ascribe to you a position that you, that you don't hold. Um, there are lots of religious families, say, just, just as a hypothetical so we can kind of focus, uh, say a family is a Catholic family and they are a potential foster family and they ascribe to the catechism of the Catholic Church, uh, including on matters related to sexual orientation and gender identity, um, the, what, what the Catholic Church teaches. Um, do you think that they should not be allowed to be foster parents? Uh, by state policy because of their uh, kind of non-affirming ideology? And if, if not, if you don't think they should be barred from doing that, why not? So certainly, uh, no, uh, Catholic people should not be barred from adopting by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I think where an agency needs to ensure the, the best interests of the child is to make sure that that family is not going to be abusive to the child, humiliate the child. Um, you know, if we're talking about a transgender teenager um, who uh, was assigned female at birth, is a trans boy, has lived as a boy for the last four years, that that family isn't gonna force him to wear dresses, uh, to stop any medical treatment that he's been prescribed by a doctor. Um, those are the kinds of situations in which we would not want to place a child, regardless of the religious beliefs of the family um, who is interested in adopting. And I think the same argument can also be made um, for children of faith, right? Um, you don't want to place a 16-year-old who's been Catholic their whole life into a family of another religion who will not affirm that the child is Catholic, who's going to force that child uh, to attend services that are not consistent with his or her beliefs. Next, I see you uh, in the back. Hi, my name is Denise Brogan-Cater with the Family Equality Council. Um, my question is for Professor Wilson. Um, I'm intrigued by this uh, thought that you had around um, the voucher system, and I'm also intrigued by um, this tension between uh, allowing faith-based agencies uh, to be able to stay in practice and not... Uh, and be able to turn away families that don't meet their their faith uh, tenants, while at the same time never having a couple be turned away. Um, and I'm curious what happens in, so I have two questions, but I'll, I guess I'll limit it to one. Um, what happens with an LGBT identified, sort of picking up off of this last question, what happens to an LGBT identified youth who is placed with an agency that doesn't recognize their identity. 
um, how does that, how does that get resolved? Let me be, before you answer to get as many comments and questions. Let me ask anyone else have a question or comment about vouchers that we can toss to uh, the <laughs> panel here. Anyone else on vouchers? Yes, here. Yeah, hi, I'm give one second for the mic. Um, it's coming. It's coming to you. Hi, uh, I'm Jillian Friedman with the Deseret News in Salt Lake City. Um, and my question um, for Professor Wilson is just how, how does this not end up in the same situation, given that the vouchers will be government funding? If you know I'm in a same-sex relationship and I have this voucher and I approach a faith-based agency, maybe because it's the best agency in my area or in the state and I really want to benefit from their services and they say, no, you know, they say no, then aren't we in the same situation in which government funding that I now have is still being used in a way that I still can't access those services? Um, and I'm wondering if that's because of the certification that you're saying that like maybe that certification would happen not from the agency itself and from, um, from, me from the state itself and that would avoid some of the endorsement issues. But I'm just wondering if you can address how we wouldn't just end up in the same situation where litigation could happen again because those couples are still being denied and using government funding. Okay, anyone else on vouchers? Any other comment or question on vouchers here? No, then let me begin oh. with, yes, did someone else? Yes. Sorry, I didn't ask my voucher question. Go for so my it. voucher question was, um, how do the new agencies that you're talking about recruit families? Um, is that gonna, is this, you're talking about an open market, are you talking about uh, advertising dollars or how does that process work? Okay. Well, let me take a stab. Can you hear me? Yeah, so let me take a stab at all of it. It's actually your question as well about Zellman and about choice. Um, and in the interest of time, because we have such a good timekeeper, I left off two paragraphs. So let me just recap some points that are important to this. You need better transparency and information in the market. Okay, a lot of what's happened, including the family that uh, went to one agency and was told that they did not mirror the Holy Family and then told to, to go elsewhere. In that particular instance, we have got to be sure that if, if there are lots and lots of agencies in the market, that people have an understanding of the strengths of those agencies and the niches that they work in. So with that information, in theory, people would be able to self-direct in a way that doesn't take them to an agency where they're going to have that experience. Now, I should also say something that comes up quite a lot, which is not every religious agency actually is not going to make these placements. Some of them actually feel very strongly that it's part of their religious identity and mission precisely to make these to make these placements. And so we have an informational role that the state can actually assist us with in terms of, you know, identifying different agencies. So information and transparency is important. We also have to have greater entrance into the market. And those front-loaded pieces, the certification piece, is too significant a cost for smaller agencies to bear. So we basically have forced those folks out of the market. My predictive judgment is if with the certificate, a family can walk into any agency that they know uh, matches their profile, is glad to serve them, and pay for that. There will be lots and lots more people that will do that. And I'll just give you a specific example. In one of the religious adoption agencies that I was speaking with, they talked about the averages for agencies being paid for the placement of a child. It's roughly $30 a day nationally. 
and the family gets $30 a day nationally. So if that child ends up in that family and the child stays in the same stable placement for a year, that's 21 and some change, 21,000 and some change to the agency and to the family. Now, I'm not going to judge whether that's the right breakdown of that money, but I would take three to $5,000 of the value that the state has already attributed to that and put it in the form of a certificate, just like we do with early childhood development, and let those people spend that value anywhere they want. Now, I think there'll be more people in the market that are willing to, to do the certificate, who have actually now the capacity to do this work and will be willing to do that. Now, you said to Jillian's question, where does this get you, though, if you walk up to an agency uh, that won't accept the certificate? And I think one of the things that we've seen with these kinds of models is it means that there will be a diversity of providers. So you can't be assured that every single place is going to take that certificate. Part of this is to try to grow the number of providers. and. I think it's incumbent upon the state to be sure that we never get to a choke point position where there's only two agencies and one of them won't do the service. A couple of points. First, uh, let me announce that uh, if you don't think you've ever seen anyone's mind changed by a Cato panel, that I changed my mind uh, based on what uh, Robin said, and we did not prearrange this. Uh, I, I, uh, I realize now that my notion of voucherizing it for uh, a huge subsidy for each successful placement is, uh, to put it in terms that I understand from writing about law, too much like a contingency fee. And uh, <clears throat> that's the way to scare me away from anything, is to, is, to, <laughs> is to point out that it's like a contingency fee. And that, if I understand your proposal correctly, voucherizing the home study process is a lot more promising because uh, it is a discrete part. It's already part of the cultural uh, flashpoint. Uh, and uh, home studies, if I may say so, are unlikely to be misused by people who just want the subsidy. Uh, they, um, it reminds me, I mentioned the GI Bill earlier, it reminds me of a um, government funeral benefit in which it was decided that everyone deserved a decent funeral, but you could use it for a religious funeral uh, or a secular as, as you saw fit. So yes, voucherizing home studies does sound like a better example to me. But I don't want to come across as a total uh, advocate of voucherizing everything because the issue that came up with matching uh, gay kids with super religious households uh, or vice versa reminded me that uh, for things like matching and you know the the social workers who do matching are uh, sensitive to dozens and dozens of different issues, rural-oriented households versus non-rural-oriented households, um, you know, uh, households that, that uh, cultivate high risk versus others. Uh, I trust the social workers more than, with due respect, any of us on this panel or in this room, the social workers are the ones uh, who tend to have that feel for matching. It's hard to voucherize that. Um, I don't want to throw a lot of rules on them, uh, controlling how they can match. I'd rather trust their instincts. Next question, next topic. Gentlemen over here. My name is Jed Medifund, and I just, I just appreciate all the talk of a desire for a solution that, that everyone can live with. It's maybe not perfect in anyone's eyes, and yet is workable, and ultimately works for the good of kids. In that vein, um, Sarah, I, I wanted to ask you, just in terms of, do you feel it would be possible to have a solution that guaranteed that no LGBT person 
uh, would be prevented from adopting or fostering. So that, that could, if that could be guaranteed, would um, the, the some protection for conscience rights be acceptable, even knowing that it still might risk the hurt of being turned away at, at certain agencies? Would, would that risk be okay as long as every LGBT individual would have access to the opportunity to foster or adopt? Anyone else want to ask questions about the specific status of the LGBTQ community um, in, this, in this context? Anyone else have any other questions? focused on that? Yes, please. Yeah. Is there an assumption behind that question where we're assuming that there's a right to adopt? And gentlemen back there, does someone else have their hand up there? Yes. Oh, yes. Just the related question may be stated a bit differently. What the role, in your view, Sarah, would be for religious organizations in a public system? Um, I think there's different ways of looking at what's needed and what has been done in the federal level or attempted because of the HHS rule that is preventing faith-based organizations from participating. And I wondered what your view of their participation, what would be, the, what would the world look like for you in that? Sarah, why don't you start off on these? Yeah. Um, so let me, let me start with uh, what I think is the easiest. Is there a right to adopt? And the answer is no. Um, parents must be qualified in order to be eligible to be part of the pool, right? Any individual who simply has a whim that they think adoption would be uh, kind of cool uh, is not um, going to be uh, necessarily eligible. And we absolutely, as I, I started with, have to be placing the best interests of the children um, first and foremost. Um, what I'm talking about are otherwise qualified individuals who are being prevented from adopting um, because the agency that they have gone to um, disagrees with them on a fundamental level, right? They simply dislike who they are. Um, they disapprove of them um, being gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, of a different faith, um, uh, interracial couple, right? This is sort of the challenge that we're talking about here. Um, I also want to emphasize, and, and Robin mentioned this as well, is we are not talking about a world in which um, religious organizations are going to disappear from the child welfare realm. There are many religious organizations that are operating in states uh, that have non-discrimination rules in place. There are religiously affiliated child welfare agencies who are willing to meet the non-discrimination requirements that have been set forth. Um, and where those agencies uh, have not been willing to do so, um, we have seen new agencies take their places, some of them that are also um, religious in nature. And so this isn't an either-or conversation. Um, you know, I think too often we set up this dichotomy as LGBTQ people versus religion. And that just isn't fair to either group. There are many LGBTQ people who are of deep faith, and there are many faith institutions, organizations, and churches that welcome LGBTQ people. And even sometimes when those religious um, traditions are not overly welcoming of LGBTQ people in the pews, that doesn't mean that the agencies affiliated with them feel that the appropriate response uh, is to decline to serve LGBTQ people. So we have denominations that would never marry a same-sex couple, but certainly will foster an adoption for a married same-sex couple, for example. 
Um, and, you know, look, I think we're always open to talking through um, what potential compromises are, um, what the alternatives could be, but there are some things that we really have to be concerned about. Um, one of the things that I've heard mentioned a couple of times is this idea of referral. Well, referrals often don't happen. Typically, when LGBTQ people experience discrimination at these agencies, they are turned away. They are not referred other places. Um, and there is a growing uh, interest in allowing agencies to refuse, and I don't mean uh, well, child welfare agencies, I mean religiously affiliated um, social service providers of many different types, uh, to refuse to refer. Um, if you look, uh, to get a little wonky here, we are in D.C., um, at TANF, uh, Charitable Choice, there was originally um, a requirement that you refer if you could not provide services to the individual. The individual didn't want your religiously um, affiliated services to be because they objected to the character um, of it. Fast forward uh, to uh, community service block grants, and that referral provision was removed. Religious organizations demanded that they shouldn't have to refer people. Um, we are also dealing with situations in which, um, you know, here in D.C., sure, throw a stone. You can probably find someone who will serve you. Um, if we're in rural Texas, the idea that you're going to have tons of agencies in more rural areas is a problem. Um, and just last thing to say on that, um, you know, LGBTQ folks, same-sex couples, are in 99.3% of all counties in, this uni in the United States. Um, we are not geographically limited. Stephanie, do you have a short intervention on any of this? Uh, or I have I a response for the question you asked, but I can Okay, so then just hold that for a minute. Let me tell you what we do, because we're kind of at the end of our time, and I want to give an opportunity to as many people. I'm going to ask each one of you to make a very short uh, uh, address, whatever you want, uh, in a minute, minute and a half. But let me just ask people here uh, who are out here, if you have a, a question or an intervention, 30 seconds or less, raise your hand so we get them on the record knowing they're not going to be able to answer perhaps even most of them. But let's do this. If I can ask the folks with the mic to just get to someone whose hand is up and be ready to go. Let's just hear these, and I'll interrupt after 30 seconds. Thank you so very go. much. Um, I think it's really important to have a conversation about child protective services and the process that happens before these children come into the public domain. There has always been an inherent discrimination against biological parents. And I think that when we have these conversations, it's really important to include them. Thank you. Great model of the 30-second intervention. Thank you. Yes, who's next? Who has a mic? Here. Hi. Uh, Richard Folden from the uh, Freedom Forum Center Institute, rather. Uh, my question is, to the extent to which, not, not about vouchers, but about funding in general, does public funding make a difference? In other words, if, if the argument is that if receiving public funds, you ought not to be able to discriminate on the basis of LGBTQ, does it make a difference if you have an institution that's entirely funded by the religious institution's funds? And, and similarly, uh, if your position is that they ought not to be compelled uh, to place with LGBTQ, does it make a difference if they're use, uh, you're receiving government funds? Thanks. Next. Uh, Katie Glenn from First Amendment Partnership. Um, I know you've talked about how when certain faith-based institutions are pulled out of the market, like Catholic Charities in Boston, others pick up the pace, but isn't that a wrong kind of Christian 
like problem. I mean, you're saying, oh, you have to be the right type of agency, the right type of religious institution to be able to have access to this market. And if you're not, then too bad. Like Catholics need not apply. Yes. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to see if a clarification could be made uh, by Ms. Warbelow in her final remarks. Um, she's raised a couple of times this question of being able to discriminate based on race. And my understanding is that's illegal under federal law uh, in terms of foster care and adoption. So I'm not sure how any of this these proposals would change that. Yes, who has the mic? Ryan Martin with the Finance Committee. I'm curious about the role, just to further complicate this, right? Is the situation of the role of the parents and the child in the situation? In foster care, a lot of times kids can't get their hair cut because the, foster, the actual biological parent has to agree. Yeah. I just wonder if there's a role for the foster, the parent making the decision and the child themselves. I'm going to take two more of these and then turn to the final comments here. Uh, yes, uh, Linda Clausen, American Adoption Congress. Um, Something that has not been brought up at all, and but it's underlying all of this, is, is, is post-adoption. And also, as what goes along with that is on the social media these days, we see horrendous stories about adoptions of people who have adopted 10 people, and then they put them all in cages, and they starve them, and they're arrested. I mean, one yeah. after the other. Uh, agencies should do post-adoption work. I'm a social worker, and I know that it wasn't done. Last, it last should comment. be done. Uh, Jordan Sosa, intern on the Hill and a former foster youth. Currently, there's no federal policies or statutes in place to encourage all-inclusive placements or training regarding to LGBTQ youth. Um, there was an AFCARTS report and final rule was published last year uh, of la December of 2016, but HHS, HHS announced it will be delaying implementations on the rule due to concerns on undue burden on the states. As well, there has been bipartisan support on the on a legislation called the Every Child Deserves and Family Act, but unfortunately has been stalled in Congress. Okay, so we're going to go in the opposite order that we heard the presentations in. Uh, if you would, Robin, begin us off and please model that minute and a half uh, conclusion here. So let me start uh, with uh, you and your question. So, uh, and, and to come back to something that Sarah said, one of the things I do think we should be uh, very careful to draw a line about is we've been talking about agencies, and then Sarah to some degree and you to some degree have been talking about children in care. In the states that have standalone adoption protections, there's only a single example where it actually restricts the child in care, and it's Texas. And literally it says that any child welfare provider, which is defined as a family, need not refer a child for contraceptives, for abortion, for things like that. Now, having been fostered myself, we have to realize that a child in care has had a significant rupture in their life. And just because of all the things that happened around them, they should not lose rights that any other similarly situated kid would have. Now, I spent yesterday looking at Texas's judicial bypass laws to figure out if that kid you know, would actually not be able to have the same things happen. They'd have to go to a judge if their foster family wouldn't do those kinds of things. Now, that said, 
I don't think we should be trying to say or even use stereotypes about religious families to say, oh, well, then if you're pick a, a, a faith denomination, Catholic, then you're not going to be down with abortion. So then you shouldn't be a family in whatever particular state. We need every person to come forward to do all of this work. Kids shouldn't lose their rights. And I'll say one thing, though, to, to, to you, ma'am. There are lots of kids in foster care who are subjected to terrible things. I have my early writing talking about incest in families, and a lot of it is off the charts in foster families, notwithstanding the fact that foster families generally are just lovely things for kids. So imagine no abortion as a result of something that happened to you in that place, right? This is just incredible, and we have Bobby, to think about it. Thank you so much. I know we are running out of time, but... Microphone. We are running out of time, but briefly, uh, point about child protective services, excellent point. Uh, uh, it is one of the things we at Cato have come back to again and again, is that child protective services has too much power to um, drop in and take your kids away. Um, uh, more broadly, uh, we haven't said much about the role of birth parents. I think that it sheds light on a number of things, both in the endless involvement problem with, with foster care, but also in whether, uh, which adoptive placements make sense. Because to me, uh, consulting the wishes of the original birth mother, who sometimes has strong wishes about uh, brought up in or not in her, her uh, birth religion, um, can be the key to actually getting relinquishment of uh, uh, parental rights from someone who should not be taking care of that child. Finally, as you could tell from my initial remarks, I, as a libertarian, I'm kind of soft on silos. Uh, I don't mind the idea that a, a coherent religious or ethnic group might want to get together to do a lot of its own uh, social work. Uh, and the one recognition of this in federal law, I've argued, actually goes too far, which is the Indian Child Welfare Act, which super siloizes to the point of endangering sometimes the welfare of kids with some Indian background. Uh, we are planning a, uh, an event at Cato this fall on the Indian Child Welfare Act, which I've written about. Uh, we may also have an event on child protective services. So uh, I hope that Cato is in this issue for the long term. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Um, so, yes, there is a distinction between public funds and religious institutions facilitating uh, private adoptions. We are not talking about a Baptist church who wants to facilitate adoptions privately between Baptists. We really are talking about publicly funded agencies. Um, you know, I know we've talked a lot about Catholic charities today, but I do want to emphasize that um, Catholic families are among the most accepting and loving of their LGBTQ youth, um, whether it's their own child, children that they are adopting, um, and I don't want that to get lost. Um, one of the groups most supportive of marriage for same-sex couples. Um, with respect to race, um, the state-level bills cannot allow for race discrimination. The Adderholt Amendment um, is in conflict with federal law that prohibits discrimination on the basis of race. If the Adderholt Amendment became law, um, yes, arguably it would allow for race-based discrimination. Uh, and the very last thing is Every Child Deserves a Family Act. We're so proud to partner with Family Equality Council um, on pushing this common sense legislation um, that would make sure that children have access to as many qualified families as possible. Great. And finally, Stephanie, you have the last word. Thank you. On the question you asked about what about states like Kansas where there's a choke point, I agree with Robin that it is incumbent upon state and government actors to make sure that there's not a choke point, that we have more options. Uh, I also think it would be a valuable endeavor to, instead of using money on litigation to close agencies, use that money to create 
more agencies. You can create some, like in Michigan, that focus on serving LGBTQ enterprises or populations. I don't, I don't think that that would be an adverse action, as Walter said. I think that that would be a fantastic and better use of our resources. As far as uh, it is the choke point really the issue, though, in these cases, it, there certainly is no choke point in Philadelphia. Three days of an evidentiary hearing, and the city couldn't point to one LGBTQ family that was prevented from fostering or adopting. In Michigan, the ACLU's uh, clients live closer to four different agencies and asked why they still haven't adopted to this day. They said that for the sake of the lawsuit, they're waiting. So that's not really the issue in some of these cases where we're seeing the facts unfold in the trenches of litigation. As far as Robin's idea about vouchers, I'm really intrigued by the idea of providing more upfront costs. I agree with her that the home study is a big burden. Um, I don't think that vouchers are the only way that we would have to do that. Governments could provide more funding right now as they do, which also allows for private choice. And it sounds like Robin also agrees that sometimes, even in, in her situation, families would have to understand that some agencies wouldn't be the best fit for them. Um, and the last thing I want to point out is that Sarah mentioned that there's this myth that agencies are just going to disappear if we don't support them. But that's not a myth. That's what happened in Massachusetts, in Illinois, in District of Columbia, and in California. And when these agencies disappear, families and children suffer. We are better by trying to bring in more options to find more homes for children. I want to thank all of you who uh, asked the great questions and uh, the interventions. I know some there wasn't time to answer. It's a blueprint for more that I hope Cato or other groups will address. And I want to thank this extraordinary panel for what they've done.